The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you have experienced narcissistic abuse, you are in the right place. Our mission is to help you understand the abuse you have experienced, support you through your healing journey, and to help you develop healthy relationships. I'm your host, Juliana Aiken, and in today's episode, I'm interviewing Alisa Stamps. She's a licensed clinical social worker and author of the book, The Gaslighting Recovery Journal. Alisa specializes in working with adult children of narcissists and is the founder of the support and recovery group for these individuals entitled Shattering the Mirror. She also has experience treating eating disorders and complex trauma. In today's episode, we are focusing on narcissistic family dynamics. We are going to talk about what narcissistic supply looks like in a narcissistic family, discuss why narcissistic parents don't change for their kids, point out the most common signs that someone grew up in a narcissistic family, and much more. Let's get started. We know that narcissistic supply is validation, admiration, reassurance, power, and control. In a narcissistic family system, what exactly does this look like? Yeah, so... The narcissist is at the epicenter of the system. Everything revolves around them. And um, the children and possibly the other partner becomes extensions of the narcissist. So they are kind of there to serve them, if you will, um, emotionally. Sometimes uh, projections are put on the child's, you know, what the child looks like, how they dress, how they talk, how they act, what they do. So, um, you know, the system functions in that respect, a lot like a solar system, if you will. So the children become extensions of the narcissist, right? Um, They are caretakers, they are the emotional caretakers, the emotional keepers of the narcissist. um, And they are often parentified. So they are, you know, placed in these adult roles in a parent-child relationship, in roles that they shouldn't be placed in. Sometimes, you know, in terms of tasks and service towards the narcissist, and sometimes taking emotional care of the narcissist. And the narcissist, right, is completely unaware of their own emotional worlds. So they will often take those emotions that they're not understanding of and project them onto the child and then attack it. So it gets very confusing for children growing up in the system because they really don't know what is theirs, what isn't theirs. And they've grown up with it for so long that so often um, they just believe what the narcissist has projected onto them. Would you uh, be comfortable going through uh, and giving one practical example of each? So for example, if I ask like, what, what could a narcissist who is wanting validation from their family members look like and then admiration reassurance and etc would you be comfortable with doing that i can try (laughs) okay great so what do you think so if a narcissist is looking for validation in a narcissistic family system what practical example would come to your mind i i think the most clear way I can explain it is that they the narcissist will place themselves in the victim role time and time again 
Okay. So they will turn it into, um, you know, others in the family being their perpetrators or their rescuers. So they'll project onto the child how much they've hurt them or that they did something wrong. Why are you doing this to me, right? And then the child comforts them, which is validation to the narcissist. Remembering too, that the core fear of the narcissist is the fear of abandonment, real or perceived. So they'll do whatever they have to do when that core fear gets activated. Mm, okay, thank you. And then what about a simple uh, practical example about when they are seeking admiration? Um, so that, that can get a little tricky because it could be overt admiration where they want to be recognized for, look what I did for you. Look at all I do for you. Look what I bought you. Right. And then if the children are extensions, which they often are in these systems, um, they can take kind of their own accolades from the children's accomplishments. Right. So if the child, um, does very well in school or does well, let's say musically or something, they're going to take that in as if they're receiving the accolades, not so much their child receiving the accolades, or they may use it in ways to sort of brag about their children to others. Um, and then they indirectly get the admiration from mm -hmm. others because mm -hmm. of their child. Yeah. Makes sense. Thank you. Very helpful. Yeah. Then uh, what about reassurance? Um, I, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is like a, a narcissist maybe saying, oh, you know, do you think I'm a terrible mother? Do you think I'm a terror? I must be the worst father in the world, right? So they're like begging for the children to be like, no, 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 we love you. We love you, right? I'm thinking of the movie Mommy Dearest here too, where this mother, you know, in the movie is vicious to the children, but demands that they, you know, say that they love her, say that they, they call her mommy dearest, right? So they, there is this very insecure push-pull that the narcissist creates. Mm. And you mentioned the core fear, fear of abandonment. Is it That's right. yeah, tied to this need for reassurance? Always. Always. Yeah. Tied pretty much to everything. I would say. Okay. Uh, then uh, what comes to your mind? Uh, power. How do they seek power? Well, you know, the, the term gaslighting comes up for me here, that they kind of create this alternate reality, that their reality becomes the reality. So the truth gets very, very blurred around things so that it creates this um, questioning and self-doubt for the targets of their gaslighting for the, you know, for their children, where the children are like, oh, maybe I did say that, maybe I am bad here, maybe this isn't right, right? So it creates this questioning, so then they have to rely on the narcissist as the truth teller, when in actuality, right, it's the narcissist reality and truth, not the reality and truth. Mm. Yeah, thank you. And then final one, control. Uh, everything goes past them, right? You, you, you obey or consequences could be narcissistic rage, could be the silent treatment, could be uh, slander. You know, there's a variety of ways that, again, the narcissist will, um, you know, 
scratch and claw whenever they feel that boundary of the abandonment being pushed, right? Mm -hmm. So there are no boundaries. Children are not allowed to have boundaries. Their boundaries are based on the narcissist's needs and whims. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. This was really helpful. Sure. Uh, then we have, how do narcissistic parents manipulate their children into giving them narcissistic supply? You know, it, it, I think a lot of it depends on the placement of the child in the family system. So let's say the child is the golden child, right? They're typically in alliance with the narcissist. And then they often triangulate the spouse or another child, another sibling. Um, and so that's kind of a vying of position in the family where again, everything revolves around the narcissist, all information passes through the narcissist, but they create this, you know, either really tight enmeshment, or if you're the scapegoat, you're cast aside, you're neglected more, and all the faults and the problems of the family are projected onto that particular child. So I think it really depends on the roles in the family system. But again, the narcissist is the epicenter, everything revolves around them mm. if let's say we have a golden child so mm -hmm. can you like clarify how does a narcissistic parent especially get narcissistic supply from the golden child right so the golden child understands consciously subconsciously i would say that they are basically there to make the narcissist happy So everything that that child does is in the shadow of what they believe the narcissist wants and what will make them happy, right? And therein creates this really enmeshed, entangled supply. And they're held on this pedestal. But <clears throat> again, the narcissist operates in the mode of, you know, all or nothing. So it's devalue, it's idealization and devaluation, right? So That golden child can be up on a pedestal in one moment. Oh my gosh, I love you. You're the best child. And then bam, the narcissist will kind of pull the rug out from under them and devalue them maybe even in the next sentence. Okay, okay. And you have mentioned a few times the word uh, enmeshment. Can you define that? Because that might be unfamiliar to some. Sure, sure. I look at it as sort of like this entanglement of the narcissist and the child to the point where you can't tell where you begin or end and where the narcissist begins or ends, right? So if the narcissist is angry, is angry, let's say, you're gonna, the, the enmeshed child will sort of like either pick up on that anger and act accordingly, adjust their own emotional center. Um, if the narcissist is sad, often, that will pull the child into being sad, right? Like everything is based on the narcissist's moods, likes, dislikes, and and the child is kind of there to enhanceify or like serve that. You know what I mean? Mm, okay. And um, yeah, so first you uh, gave, gave us a little bit more clarification about how a golden child especially gives narcissistic supply to the parent. But then there was the other other role that you mentioned, which was the scapegoat. Can you, again, kindly think, uh, give more clarification how especially a scapegoat 
gives narcissistic supply to, uh, I mean, how narcissistic parent manipulates a scapegoat to giving them narcissistic supply. Yeah, I think that's where the whole triangulation thing comes in and the scapegoat can, and, and mind you, there's a couple other family roles too. There's the, um, the mediator or the, the, you know, the court jester kind of role, the one that smooths everything over and makes, um, you know, everybody laugh and kind of diffuses situations. And then we have the forgotten child, which is just sort of like left to their own devices. But in the terms of the scapegoat, um, you know, they're there to project upon, they're there to vilify. And it's something that the whoever is in alliance with the narcissist at that time, they get to kind of join in, be fully enmeshed with the narcissist and have a place to project all of the narcissist stuff. So it, it keeps the whole system revolving in that really toxic way as well. Mm, okay, thank you. Uh, that gave us a clear uh, picture of what what's going on. So uh, then, then we have why does it take the children of narcissistic parents so long to realize that they come from a narcissistic family of origin? I think it's I think it's different from for everybody. Um, you know, I've worked with clients where they knew from day one that not from day one, but they knew pretty early on in their recovery that something wasn't right here, that, you know, the way they were being treated wasn't correct. Um, they really felt that idealization, devaluation, all or nothing from the narcissist. Um, and then there are some that it takes a long, longer time because especially I think if you're the golden child, why would you question, like if you're being revered like that by the narcissistic parent, if you've understood like how you can get attention and, and you know, love seemingly and validation, why would you question that? I think a lot of times too, um, it can be where that narcissistic child has their own children and then they're starting to like wake up to this really toxic pattern that that's sort of sometimes what does it for folks to kind of realize, wait a minute, something's not right here and I definitely don't want to do this to my own children. Mm, do you mean when, you know, that they notice some toxic behaviors that they are engaging in? It could be that they're engaging in, right? Because I think it's inevitable if we're growing up in these systems, we're going to have all these narcissistic traits projected upon us. It would be naive to think that we ourselves aren't going to just by default get some of those traits. So um, that could be part of it where we kind of say, wow, I really don't want to do that to my children. I don't, you know, really like what's happening internally for me in these situations. Um, and then it can also be just trying to do things so differently. And then you see, you know, you just kind of wake up and you look at the the whole system from a different vantage point and, and see what was done to you. And then kind of are hell bent on not reenacting that situation for your own child. Mm, okay. Do you have many clients where they kind of go back and forth that they are like someday they're like, oh, yeah, I do know it was toxic. And then the next time you meet them, they are like more like, oh, well, but I understand they like it's understandable the way they treated me or, you know, it's kind of whatever justifications or excuses. Does that happen a lot that back and forth? And if it, if it does, 
how do you explain it? Why people are going back and forth? Yeah, um, I think it can very much happen because again, right, like so much was projected on the narcissistic, uh, you know, the children in the system. There was so much manipulation, so much gaslighting. So there is that predisposition to question our own truth, our own authentic truth, right? Um, And it's a really, really hard thing to decide, you know what, I think I want to go low contact or no contact with my parent. That's never the way anybody would want it to be. It's a very sad thing. There's a lot of grief and loss in the system or in this recovery um, because you're really grieving when you kind of wake up and, and say, wow, what the hell is this, right? You're grieving what wasn't, what isn't, and what most likely won't be. So it's a really um, involved process for people that are coming out of this type of relational abuse. And just like in any other situation, right? Like we know that it takes um, survivors of let's say domestic abuse around seven times before they finally leave the very toxic unsafe situation because there is that push-pull, we're dependent on them. It's created this really codependent dance. So I think, you know, that's that's where the returning comes in. And the narcissist is very good at trying to hook us back in, right? They know all the tricks to kind of create that honeymoon period again, create that I'm so sorry period again. So it, it really makes sense, and especially when it's apparent that People, people will often return or question or say, well, maybe it wasn't that bad. Hey, I hope you are enjoying this episode right now. If you didn't know this already, our mission here at Unfiltered is to help people who have experienced narcissistic abuse understand the abuse they have experienced, support them through their healing journey, and to help them develop healthy relationships. We want to help as many people as possible, but the only way we can reach everyone is if you choose to share this episode. So if you have been getting value from our content, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with others. You could do this by sharing it with your online support groups, sending it to someone dealing with a narcissist, or even leaving a review. Thank you so much. Let's get back to the episode. For many people, having children motivates them to become the best version of themselves. Why don't narcissistic parents change for their children? Why do narcissistic parents only view their children as sources of narcissistic supply? This is a question I get asked a lot. Like, why did why why did my mother, why did my father do this, right? And I think also to add into that question, often people will ask, where was my other parent in all this too? Why, why didn't they protect me? Um, and the answer I would give is if you're, and I'm stealing this from my um, co-host of the podcast that I do, Casey, who explains like, you know, the, the sort of narcissistic swimming pool and you have the deep end, which is like your textbook narcissist. And then maybe in the shallow end, you have, you know, some narcissistic traits, some borderline traits, cluster B traits, right? And I think if somebody is a full-fledged narcissist, it is a tall ask to um, point out to them that, hey, you're really, you're projecting a lot of destructive behaviors and toxic things onto your child, right? 
they just they they are emotionally unaware they have no idea mostly that this is what's happening so to ask them to consider that their behaviors might be something inappropriate and then consider asking for help receiving help staying in a situation let's say with a therapist who's very good at holding boundaries i think is a very tall ask also you know any sort of these cluster b personality disorders are born of childhood trauma so the narcissistic parent is a very wounded individual as well but again very much unaware of their own wounds and even what they're doing in the system to create such toxicity okay thank you thank you so much uh then what would you say uh what are some of the most common signs that indicate a person comes from a narcissistic family of origin they have this core belief of just not being good enough um, they also maybe have these core beliefs that have been projected there that they're unlovable, that they're unworthy, they're undeserving, and they really struggle to maintain um, relational intimacy. So there's a lot of insecurity, a lot of self-doubt, and ultimately just a very uh, wounded person. Mm, how does it play out if they struggle uh, holding maintaining their relational intimacy does it mean that they are not able to be vulnerable with someone or yeah can you talk more about that yeah i think it can go either way i think it can feel very uncomfortable to um be vulnerable with another person i think it's really hard for an adult child of a narcissist to even know who their authentic self is um so that's part of the discovery um that they don't even know what they like what they dislike you know what they stand for what they don't because they've just taken in everything that the narcissist has projected there and then compiled a person from that so that's part of it too is just beginning to arrive i call it into your own authentic self the the more you recovery the more you recover okay okay what about do you have you noticed that people who come from narcissistic family of origin that they also i don't know is this related to not knowing what is your authentic self but also kind of not having like almost not having any boundaries yes yes so the boundaries are very blurred um you know they they didn't grow up with what boundaries look like they didn't really grow up with the autonomy to say no so i think you know there's that fawn trauma response which is kind of a newer trauma response but often that is i think associated with these children growing up in these environments where they're people pleasing they're so worried about people liking them that um boundaries just become really confusing and being able to say no to something and being able to speak your own wants and needs you know looks like confrontation i have a lot of clients who say you know I'm, i really don't like confrontation well is it confrontation or are you just simply saying what you want to do what you don't want to do what you like what you don't like <clears throat> and i think that can be very hard for um folks coming out of these systems 
Mm, okay, thank you. What if you are in a narcissistic family system that you have more being in the role of the, you know, let's say the golden, golden child? Uh, and you mentioned the trauma response fawn, like that you go into people pleasing behaviors. Uh, could you also have almost like a fight trauma response that you become very argumentative when you feel like you are being threatened, which actually looks like like a like a narcissistic behavior because you you get you know offended easily because you're like you said your own sense of self has been developed as a result of having the narcissistic mother is there any difference like depending on what role uh you had in a narcissistic uh, family system so is there a difference between maybe different trauma responses as well i i think there might be um that's a really good question you know i'm thinking that the golden child would be more likely to have that fawn response or even that freeze response of just kind of shutting down uh, you, and... you the golden child would have the fawn and freeze not the fight I would say maybe more the scapegoat would be the fighter. Oh, okay. Um, but, you know, I, again, I think <clears throat> every individual is different and maybe mm. every situation where kind of um, we're being activated and our parts of self are being activated, may, they may show up in different ways, right? Um, it may be a freeze response or a, a fight response, let's say, even for the golden child in terms of like authority figures, let's say there is that pushback. Right. And um, so I, I really think it can, it can vary on the situation, the individual, but I would say more likely than not, it may skew certain ways based on the role you had in your family. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, then what would you say? What are the different types of narcissistic parents? Yeah, so, um, you know, we have the engulfing narcissistic parent. Um, I give examples of this sometimes in work that I do with folks. Like, uh, if you've ever seen the show Transparent, um, yeah, it's a it's on Amazon. It's It was canceled, but it's a good show. I think it's still on Amazon. But um, the mother in that show, Judith Light, her character is a definitely an engulfing narcissistic parent to the point of like a physical engulfing of her children, right? Like just not being able to back off, not having, not giving them space, right? Um, again, the children are extensions of her. She's an extension of the children. So I would say there's that engulfing. And then we have the neglectful narcissistic parent, the one who really is not there at all to meet the child's maybe sometimes physical needs, definitely emotional needs. If you look at the father from um, Shameless, that's a prime example of like a ignoring, neglectful, narcissistic parent. Oftentimes there'll be mental health things or let's say substance use things or work, uh, workaholic kind of traits that really keep that neglectful, ignoring parent at a distance. Um, and then you can have a mix sometimes. It can go either way. You know, uh, an example of this is Shirley MacLaine's character in terms of endearment, where, you know, she's given birth to her child, her child's sleeping in the crib. She comes in to make sure the child's breathing, whatever, wakes the child up, the child cries. She says, that's better. And then she leaves the room. Right. So her needs were met there, lets the child cry, leaves, 
you know, to leave the child crying by themselves and she's been satisfied. So it can kind of go either way sometimes too. I hope you enjoyed that episode and perhaps you are going to listen to it a couple more times if you found the insights shared by Alisa interesting. Before I let you go, I would like to invite you to join our free community. My team and I send out free courses and healing exercises every week. We also host live therapist-led Q&A sessions every month that are 100% free. To join, please click the link in the podcast notes or visit unfiltered.net slash community. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'll catch you in the next one.